0: everybody and welcome back inside the Sharks tank. We appreciate it's been a bit of an absence from, from our side, but we are back with another episode of the podcast Open Soul Sharks. And over the last couple of weeks, there has been plenty to talk about. My name is Lewis and I'm joined this week by my co-host, James. James, it's been a few weeks. How's, uh, how's things your side?
1: Yeah, all right. I mean, it's been a weird end to the season, is not it? Mm. So it's playing one week off for three. Yeah, back for a couple, off for another two. I don't know who's managing the uh, the calendars, but uh, you have to be a pretty hardcore rugby club rugby fan, I think, to to see to see the current situation through and the season through. The good news for us is it's worthwhile at the moment mm. because, because we're in, in a good in a good place in the Premiership.
0: Well, we we talked about this off air a moment ago, but it's probably worth re- reiterating here. It has felt like a very fractured end to the season. Now, obviously, part of this has been driven by Worcester and Wasps no longer existing. Um, But, you know, Penny, for your thoughts just on what what this means from a momentum perspective, like for Premiership Rugby as a product as a whole, you know, how have you sort of taken this season in terms of what it actually means for the wider game?
1: I think it's very difficult for the wider game. Um, You know, rugby is about habit. Especially professional rugby as a supporter, I mean, you know, you, you want one week to be away. You might get the odd fun bus with the with the sales supporters club, um, and but but generally you'll go to the home games every other week, whether it's a Premiership game, a cup game, right? Um, and it's just been all over the show. I think we've had one home game since since New Year. Um, so if we have a home semi final, it's only the second time since New Year since since twenty twenty two um so I don't know how they expect you know if they're trying to build a sustainable game I have literally no idea how they're expecting clubs to do that honestly in the current um, state of affairs and we know that the Champions Cup and Challenge Cup's an absolute shambles as well there's just you know there's not enough at stake in the season you know when you've got eight teams out of 11 qualifying for the Champions Cup I mean it makes a joke of the whole thing honestly so stop I'll stop myself there because otherwise I'm going to go on a massive ramp. But I think it's difficult for commercially for the clubs and for supporters. I think it's just a turn off honestly. Um, in terms of momentum for sale, the good news is at least that we we now have a reasonable run in. You know, including this week Cardiff was a bit of a one-off that was kind of quite isolated. Um, and um you know we did couldn't face a pod after that. Um, but but we can face a pod. After, after winning away at Bristol, it's always nice to stick it to Pat Lamb's side. You know, now we get to build some momentum now because our form since the new year has been poor uh, and certainly not a ch- title-winning team's form. But if we can win two out of our final three games in the Premiership and then go into a home semi-final um, and win that, then actually you've won three out of four going into a final. And actually that's form enough. To win a title, you know, we've seen the likes of Leicester and Saracens over many, many years picking up momentum at this time of the year. So the win was important against Bristol. Um, and yeah, we hopefully have that momentum now.
0: Yeah, so just on that topic, then, the reason why we brought this up straight off the hop is it has been a really weird second half of, of the season. And to that point about home games, the sale played Leicester at home 31st of December, so that's New Year's Eve. Since then, there was the uh, the Champions Cup game against Toulouse at home on the fifteenth of Jan. There was the uh, Bath game in the Premiership Rugby on the twenty eighth of Jan. And that's it. <laughs> there was the Saracens game. Premiership game. home game. So, in twenty twenty three. So that was so. Sorry, there was there was the there was the Sale Saracens game on the sixth of March. But you basically had since uh, since. January three home games, two in the Premiership, and we are now mid-April. There is the Newcastle game to finish the uh, to finish the the, the season uh, next month. But you're looking in the space of one, two, three, four, four and a half months. You will have played four games. Like how on earth are teams supposed to build momentum? How on uh, both on the field and off the field when when the fixture list is so sporadic? It is it is crazy. So two Premiership games. This year, before the Newcastle game to to end the season, just crazy, but that's why uh, Friday night's result, thirty six points to twenty away at Bristol, is just so important because in a season which is certainly um, not gone the way most people uh, uh, anticipated, particularly fans of teams that don't exist anymore, um, this was the this was the get right game. The Cardiff game a couple of weeks ago was a bit of a non event. This was the chance for Sale to really start to get the season well, so the end of the season, right back on track. And he did that in pretty convincing fashion, I think, James. What was your takeaway from this? Bad conditions, away from home, Friday night, Bristol in a, a slight uptick of form. This was a pretty good job done.
1: Yeah, and actually Bristol did have something to play for because of the ridiculous eight teams qualifying for the Champions Cup. You know, when you've got a stadium as big as Ashton Gate, you really do need to be in that competition because they do get good crowds there. Um, quite a, yeah, it was quite a reduced crowd for the Sale game. It was noticeably reduced compared to most of their other fixtures. You know, so they don't want too many of them in the Challenge Cup last year. So they had something to play for. Um, they've also been a bit bruised by playing Sale. Like, we we definitely have won over them. There's no question about that. They do not like our physicality. But having had that, you know, reverse against Cardiff and played really poorly, you know, and we've had a couple of really poor outings recently. Plus, we've been carrying a couple of injuries, you know, in the squad. You know, thankfully we had Tom Curry back, but Dan Dupree has got off his arm hanging off. They'll patch him up and get him out there for a home semi. But like, you know, there's a a few things. uh, Kobe's visa obviously out for the season is a massive, massive blow at this stage of the season. So, you know, and then this continuing uncertainty around, you know, the determination to make Rob Rob Dupree work at 13 and we know we had an all right run there last year but his outings there this season have been a complete disaster and so you know really fair play to the coaching staff for being really sticking to that you know they are determined to 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 give them a run of games because that's the only way that you can make the 13 channel work is by playing a run of games so you can't really just have to do it for two or three games and stop if this is you know they would have made the decision maybe six weeks ago when it was obvious that George Ford's fitness was, was holding that, that this was just something something they were going to commit to. And if it's not worked by the home semi, then they'll kind of maybe make a decision then, um, you know, cause Sam James has had a good run of games. He knows 13, he could probably just slot straight back in. So, you know, they've, they, you know, there's a bit of uncertainty around the squad. So to rock up down to Ashton gate and really squeeze them out, like physically squeeze them out again, we've seen it a million times. But what I was really impressed with was ball control, not in great conditions. You know, our kicking game out of hand from 9 and 10 wasn't brilliant, but but just the actual um, skill level of keeping the ball in contact, going multi-phase has still allowed us to move up the pitch, even though our kicking game wasn't completely on. And I thought George Ford's kicking at goal and his drop goal especially just showed his awareness and his game management. Um, you know, he's, he's, he's such a quality player and, and actually, looking at him, it was the first game we've seen him in a sale jersey at ten, where it was he was recognisable as the George Ford that we've seen in a Bath jersey, in a Leicester jersey, in an England jersey, um, and that bodes really, really well because we've got two more games just to just to continue playing him basically now. I and mean, they they might think again about playing him at Gloucester. I think we'll talk about that in a bit about how we select on on that artificial turf. But yeah, I thought it was very, very impressed. I mean, what was your what was your take? What were the key the key learnings from the game for you?
0: I mean, I'm glad you touched on George Ford because I mean this was, to your point, the first time where it really felt we had a George Ford calibre player in our team versus some of his prior performances where he's been solid whilst being probably unspectacular. This was a real sort of Example of how a player like George Ford can elevate your team because actually we win by 16 points, but 21 of those, 21 of our total points all came from the boot of George Ford. Didn't miss a kick or game, three for three for conversion, four for four for penalties, and obviously that drop goal as well. It's a dying art in the game, the drop goal, and it just shows very clever game management. Uh, obviously, the actual technique behind it was very impressive as well. He had Fitz Harding, you know, running him straight down, uh, straight down his channel. Um that, to me, was the game where you start to see how um, the two, three, five-point wins of the past become two tries plus wins. And I don't think it was all down to George Ford. There was plenty of impressive performances. The Currys get a lot of mentions in our three-word review, so spoilers for that in a second. But for me, this was the first game where it's like, okay, we've got a world-class 10 uh, at fly half, pulling the strings, uh, you know, making a difference and, and making it for... Turning a narrow wins into comfortable wins. And that is such an important step about where this t- sale team is going to go over the next year, two, three years, because you can't pay George Ford the salary he's on if you're not getting those types of performances, particularly in a league where the salary cap is going down. So, just really, really impressive from him in particular. And it bodes very well for the end of the season where his experience, his, his skill set, his ability to run games when the pressure is on at its most severe is going to become even more important. And it just raises the ceiling, I think, of where Sal could go this year a little bit higher than it was maybe with Rob Dupree at 10 or even AJ McGinty at 10, who, by the way, had a fantastic little uh, little chip kick for, uh, for one of Bristol's tribes. We've seen that one a couple of times before. That was a lovely bit of individual skill, so I wanted to call that out as well. Um, but just look... Job done. This is a Bristol team that is, you you know, in theory, still in contention for, uh, I mean, up until last uh, this week, in theory, we're still in contention for a top four place, um, even if it was by quite slim margins. You know, they're on a decent, a better run of form. They had something to play for. You know, this was a bit of a, not a banana skin game for sale, um, but it was a, a potentially tough outing. And you could have certainly seen, as we have done this year, Bristol turning around and putting 40 points on us and just winning like it's nothing. So the Irish game a couple of weeks ago was an example of that. We've seen Bristol do that to a couple of teams this year. The entire league has been quite topsy-turvy in that regard. So to kind of go down there, especially when conditions aren't great, just churn out a win and have the ability of, of a George Ford and a Tom Curry to really pad that lead out to make it very comfortable, that's really, really exciting for where this team can go late this season. With that all being said, let's do some three word reviews. So, as I mentioned, a lot of love for the Curry, Curry twins on this one. They, they started at six and seven for, I'm not entirely sure how many times we have done it this year, but it was nice to see them both back uh, in the same starting lineup. So, Rod Nisbet, Twin Daloo. Zach, Curry and Curry. Uh, Matt Sansbury, Sales Teddy Bear Picnic. He's put Teddy Bear as one word there, but we'll, we'll, we'll let it go. Uh, Richard Lilly, Curry's bloody fantastic. Uh, Deb, I'm feeling very optimistic. Uh, final Tickets Purchased, okay, all right, we'll come on to that. Simon Landy, Starting to Dream, Mark Cole, James at 13, uh, N- uh, Nicholas Waits, Sharks, More Bears, Peter Taylor, Back on Track, Nicholas Watson, Curry's Different Level, GWD, Complete Physical Dominance, and Alex Etherington, World Class Curry. So, look, there is a very clear theme in those reviews this week. So, so James, how important were the Curry Brothers in the win, in, in this win? Because I've just talked about George Ford and how he made a. He he turned a slight win into a comfortable win. What impact did the Curry brothers uh, as a collective have on uh, on Friday's game?
1: I I just thought the way they operated together was kind of beyond what you see of a normal six and seven. There was this is something telepathic there. They've been playing rugby probably since they've been in the womb, and um, you know I, I, you you just think that that's an extra maybe two percent maybe in terms of performance of those two just being on the same wavelength. That no other back row um, uh, flankers could could replicate. And it makes you th- wonder whether for England that's something they should be trying. I've thought for a long time that Tom Curry's best position is six. I think it was a, it, the right decision Eddie Jones putting him there alongside Underhill at the last World Cup. And he hasn't really played there since the last World Cup uh, for England, maybe a couple of times. Um, but I, I think that's his best position now. He's slightly less mobile than he was but his physicality is absolutely outrageous. In the first half, I thought Ben Curry was outstanding. His, his, one of his best performances, first ever best performances in a half for sale ever. Um, he was just everywhere, tackled everything, loads of turnovers, good carrying, obviously a great try as well, very poor tackle from uh, Lahif. Even so, you know, he... he Ben Curry was on it and then the second half I think Ben took a bit of a knock to his shoulder so he might not be around next week uh, so we shouldn't be taking any risks whatsoever with him but Tom Curry just got stronger and stronger and stronger he's only played that Northampton game pretty much since pretty much since maybe like the beginning of february maybe even january so he's bit he's he's not played much rugby and I just thought he got stronger and stronger got 80 minutes under his belt and you know the commentators are absolutely right basically if you're playing sale do not run at a curry because they're so physical, they smash you in the tackle, like smash you, and then the other one just turns you over because they're stood right next to each other. I've never seen the back rows sort of play quite like that before. I thought it was outstanding. Before I just hand over to you, this one also make the shout, but there's no shout out to John Ross there. But I thought he was outstanding as part of that back row unit at eight. I thought he carried really, really hard for the most part. I thought his his um, skill level and contact was really, really high in retaining a possession. So. Big shout-out to Jono as well.
0: And just on that point about the Curries, three turnovers, one on the day for Tom Curry, two turnovers, one on the day for Ben Curry. So that's five total. Um, And just to your point, Tom Curry, 23 tackles, Ben Curry, 14 tackles. Um, Interestingly, the carries, Ben Curry, six carries, Tom Curry, only a single carry for seven metres, which is quite interesting but it probably speaks to, like you said, the the way in which their ability to play together is evolving, where you are seeing more of Ben Curry as the mobile carrier who gets around the park and, and kind of runs at everything. And Tom Curry is is almost in that, I, I don't want to say an enforcer role, but a bit like an enforcer where it's just bang, bang. Um, he's either making a tackle or he's over the ball. Like 23 tackles in a game is insane. Like that is an incredible number. That's, you know, it goes back to, you know, the Jacques Berger days where he's making 30-odd in a game. Um And unsurprisingly, that was by far the most of, of any player. But, you know, you're just seeing actually, to your point, how well Tom can play as a six in that more traditional north-south role. And then Ben Curry, maybe because he hasn't had so many years with England, he's, he's slightly leaner, he's slightly quicker around the park, plays a very different role, but is also equally effective. So, you know, just just, you know, to have both of them in the squad on top of all the other players we have. It, it shows you just, again, how far we can go in this competition, which we'll come on to in a second. But before we talk about that, just a, just a word from you, James, on, on Gus Wall's performance, because we mentioned you know conditions were tricky. You mentioned sort of game management, 9 and 10, maybe not the best, but he still found a way to make a difference in the game, and I sit with, a, with a, a lovely sniping try towards the end of the, the second half.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and also the length of time he stayed on the pitch, I think, shows how the coaching staff feel about our, the selection at nine. Now it's very, very clear mm. um, that Guswar is, is out and out number one.
0: Um, Sixty-nine minutes, uh, in yeah. case you're interested, listeners. Exactly, minutes. When
1: you're Rafi on the bench. Um, you know, you, you'd expect Gus to be coming off at fifty-five, maybe. So I think it goes to show how they feel that his game management is far superior. Also, the way he's obviously, you know, he services the 10s. You know, the the coaching staff would be speaking to George Ford. They would have spoken to Rob Duprier. And, uh, you know, the consistency of his passing off both hands is exceptional. Also, you know, he's a proper wind-up merchant. I mean, the thing that if he played for any other team, we'd hate him. We'd we'd really hate him because he's an absolute knob. Uh, But we love him because he's been a knob to all of our uh, opponents. (laughs) And... uh, you know, he's when he when he makes a tackle on a forward, he he gets up and he pats the forward on the on the on the ass, and and he, and he says something to them, which probably will be something around, uh, you know, you're you're a really really big lad now, about one foot one, and I've just nailed you, <laughs> kind of thing. So no, he he's he's you know there was a lot of chat. We'll talk about this in the season review, I'm sure. Um, but lots and lots of chat about how Sanderson made a mistake not going to market to get a nine, like an experienced nine. Everyone was banging on about Joe Simpson who barely played for us when he arrived. You know, Gus War is now the out-and-out out number one. Rafi's got a lot of work to do to get this shirt back. Um, and I'm sure with a proper pre-season and everything else, he'll come back strong. And that's what Rafi needs. He's just had two very disrupted years. But I still, I still think that in a Premiership final, the impact that Rafi can have off the bench could be a game-changer. You know, the ground, the conditions you'd imagine will be different. The pitch will be firmer um, and uh, that will suit Rafi a, a, a lot more. So, no, fair play to Gus. You know, he's um, uh, he's really nailed down that, that you know, number one jersey and number one jersey for the 2nd place team in the Premiership this year. It won't be long until um, England or Scotland come uh, come calling for his services, I'm sure, post-World Cup.
0: Well, we'll we'll talk about that in a little bit more detail later on. You've teed that up very, very nicely. Um, But I guess the main thing from the Sale game that we we do need to talk about is obviously the fact that with this win, Sale have secured a playoff spot for the second time in, in three years. Now, there's still a number of permutations of how the table might shake out. But with Northampton, who are currently fourth on 53 points, having played the game extra than Sale, in theory, Sale can't drop any further than uh, the fourth position, so playoff is secured. However, a home playoff is still uh, up for grabs. So even though Sale sit quite comfortably at the moment in second, they're seven points clear of Leicester, uh, in third, and obviously seven points clear of Northampton with the game last played in fourth. Um, this is, you know, we're, we're now we've we've got the playoff sorted. We're now pushing for a home semi-final. So before we talk about that, and we talk a bit about the Gloucester game. James, I guess from, from your perspective, with everything that's happened this season, how, how big of an achievement is it to have wrapped up that that playoff place for remember only the second time in best part of 15 years?
1: Yeah, I think it's a tremendous achievement, it really is. And you know, I think it's job not done. You know, you've got home semi final sitting right in front of you commercially, and for the you know, chances of winning the title, it's so, so important. So it just feels like we can't celebrate it just yet. I also have memories of uh, 2008, where we we missed out on the playoffs on the last game of the season. We were losing bonus point at home to London Irish, uh, and didn't get it. Lost by eight points or nine points, I think it was. It was just it was just the most horrific uh, day that I can remember being at a game uh, because we we knew in that year. Sorry to go off on a little bit tangent, but we knew we had all our best players back. But it was the last time that we were being together. Bill bit like Exeter's situation. I think mean, if Exeter get into the final four, they'll be dangerous in that regard because they've still got a lot of players who can win the premiership and it's the last time that they'll be together as a group. Um, so hopefully they can do us a favour, at least against Leicester today. As we record this podcast, we don't know the result of that. That can make a big difference to Sale as to whether we can get that home semi-final and who we'll be playing against as well. Um, so no, massive achievement from the lads. I liked the um, interview with Ben, with the curries afterwards, uh, after the game, because they both made it absolutely clear. Let's go to Gloucester, let's win, get it done, right? Um, and then, that you know, that means that the Newcastle game, we can, you know, just focus on getting the partnerships right. You know, get, get getting people locked together, maybe resting a couple of players who are carrying knocks, giving a send-off maybe to the likes of Will Cliff, etc. that we'll talk about in a bit, which would be really nice. So let's go down to Gloucester, get the result, and uh, then we we can have a home semi-final. And what an opportunity! What an opportunity! Because what happens? It, it's it's out of your out of your hands a little bit. If you're at home in the semi-final, you should win. Final, you know, flip a coin. You know, you you, you 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 can't go in there and have any expectations to win. It's a final. You don't know how people operate under pressure. You don't know what you know. What's going to happen with the other team? It's, it's twicking them. All sorts of differentiating factors, one-off game. But, yeah, come on, lads, let's get this home semi and then let's fill the stadium. You know, Simon Orange, I'm sure, will be on it. But if we can win against Gloucester, that gives a really long run into the, to, to the semi-final as well where we can be putting up massive posters at every single tram stop, every single tram. You know, that whatever whatever millions we've got in the bank, uh, it's Mr, Mr Orange this is the time to go massive and build a stadium and, you know, it will be an amazing occasion.
0: That, that's a fantastic point, which I must admit I hadn't already considered, which is, you know, sales still have the opportunity to win, uh, to, to get home semi-final, even if they don't beat Gloucester next week. But actually, how much more momentum in a season riddled by lack of gains or coverage could you build with an extra week? to sell tickets and to get the news out there. And look, I work in advertising, so I know an extra week can also buy you lots of different advertising opportunities on trams and tram, spot, uh, tram stops and all that kind of stuff. Like it'd be such a important momentum push to get it sorted a couple of weeks out from the semifinal. You then get to have your final home game of the season against Newcastle not as a bit of a, I don't want to call it a celebration, but it's an end of season sort of carnival of rugby, right? You send off Will Cliff, you send off the players who might be leaving. You, you, you know, you get game time with Ford at 10 and Dupree at 13 or whatever, but you also get a, hey, this result doesn't matter. This is a taster for a home semi-final the following week or in two weeks or whatever it is. And I think that makes such a massive, massive difference. Um But I guess, you know, just to before we talk about that Gloucester game and and getting that that job done, you know, just to think about where we were coming into the season. Well, we said on our season preview, we need to get back into the playoffs, right? We finished fifth last year. A couple of things went against us, right? That's fine. But you need to start getting your momentum of being a consistent contender for the top four. Twice in three years is pretty good. Next year, we'll obviously look to make it three out of four. To get that wrapped up with a couple of weeks to go, I think is a marker of just how well the team has gone this year. We've been the second best team in the league basically all season. That's a really strong position to be in. And to get that wrapped up now means we can start focusing on, okay, how do we actually make a deeper run into the playoffs? That starts with a home playoff. There's there's no two ways about it. Um, and it's just nice to be able to talk about this versus last year where we were like, okay, well, there's a couple of fixtures to go. We need X to lose to Y. To, to make sure we can get in. This year, not, we don't have to worry about any of that. It's just about focusing on the jobs at hand that need to be done. We've done that. We've done our bit. Now it's time to get that home. So, I mean, it's just a really nice position to be in. And again, it's a, you know, it's a testament to the project that's happened at the club over the last couple of years where it's not just about sneaking into the playoffs on the final day, which we would kind of there or there about under Steve Diamond, um, in the Steve Diamond era, I should say. It's now about, okay, well, we've got our playoff space secured a couple of weeks out and now we can push a bit further. I think that's a testament to whether, how, how much the club has grown in the last couple of years. Um, with all that being said then, we've got a job to do next weekend against uh, against Gloucester. Um, James, what do we need to know about the Gloucester team and where they are in, in their season uh, as we look ahead to, to that fixture next week?
1: Well, uh, well their 2023 has been a complete shambles. They've had two guiding lights in in Europe. One was a a away win in Bordeaux, which is, you know, let's say that's more than rare. Um, And then nearly going all the way against La Rochelle as well, which was an outstanding performance, probably the best performance I've seen from a Gloucester side in a long time. Um, But lost. Um, They've only won once in the Premiership since, uh, I think, before Christmas. So, I mean, they're, 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 they're in not a great state. And then to lose at home this weekend to Bath, who can't play rugby. Sorry, Bath plug listeners, if you're listening to this pod. Um, but, uh, you know, but Bath are finding a little bit of form. Don't get me wrong. They're starting to get there. I think there'll be a fixture next year. They're, they're going to be much more difficult to play again. But for, for, for this season, you know, Gloucester needs to be winning at home against that Bath side. Um they they they've struggled for consistency at ten for some unknown reason. They've just gone and played really twelve trees there for the last few games for solidity, kicking a goal obviously is, is excellent. Um and, and, and Santi Carreras has been back to fifteen. But where they were I think their their ceiling is obviously without Hastings, which is a big blow for them not to have him around. That is that's tough. Um, but, you know, Carreras is international 10 and um, has played some brilliant games for Gloucester at the, in that position. You just feel now with with just a couple of games left, they need to go with him, you know, because they've got nothing to lose. They need to get into the Champions Cup for next year. Um, so they're, they're not in a great place, to be honest. But, you know, Gloucester's one of those cities. These players are now going to be walking around Gloucester all week having lost the bath. And they're going to be feeling ashamed and every single coffee shop owner, pasty shop owner or whatever they're visiting are also ashamed of them. <laughs> and they are going to come out of the blocks at the weekend, firing especially in in, in the pack. Ben Morgan's last season, he's going to be giving it absolutely everything. You know, they've got some James Ackerman players like this, strong physical, physical players. So I think, um, you know, the other aspect, of course, is that we don't go brilliantly on a 4G pitch uh we never have and um you know that that will also impact our selection as well and and that's the question i was going to ask you um lewis is you know we, we've often rested the likes of tshilangi george ford's coming back from a knee injury you know um we've got other players who have had significant leg injuries what do, what, what do we do around selection for this game because you, as we said ideally you win it and then you're just advertising for a home semi but do you also want to risk some of these players, Ben Curry, Dan Ducreo, Carrion Knox?
0: It's a really interesting question because we are increasingly seeing this as a consideration across the league, which is four or five teams in the comp have 4G pitches and there are some players who whose knees just don't work anymore on that sort of surface. I don't think we'll see Tuolanghi play on... on um, I think it's is it Saturday, Sunday. I Can't remember. Um, this weekend, right? Because <laughs> exactly, yes, yeah. When you've got a glass cannon like Manu Tuilangi, you don't want to do anything that's going to like push it over. And obviously, the four G pitch, it does. It does put more wear and tear on these. It does put more stress on certain body parts. You know, we, and we've seen it with a number of players now, not just at Sale, but but elsewhere, and. I don't know what you do about that. If you're Premiership Rugby, you know, Manu Tuilagi, one of the most recognisable players in, in, in the game, in the worldwide game, can't play in six, six fixtures a year because the pitch surface might aggravate his long standing knee injuries or, or whatever. Like, I don't know how you fix that. From a sale perspective, there should be enough here to beat this Gloucester team. This Gloucester team, you know, they're, 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 they're usually pretty good at home. We know King's Homes can be a bit of a fortress, but with where they are in this season, off the back of that loss to Bath, nothing really to play for in theory. And this Sale team riding high after a good win against Bristol, regardless of whether Tualangi plays or not, whether or not George Ford plays or not, we should have enough to beat this team. And I think that's the way we have to look at it, which is let's not take any risks. Tualangi, you know, stay in Manchester for the weekend, George Ford, you know, invite Manu around to your coffee shop in Oldham, that kind of thing. Um anyone who's, you know, got got these niggles, don't play. We should have enough to to get through this. Um I'm not going to say comfortably, but there should be there, there should be enough in this team to pick up the points that we need. That's the approach I would take, which is you have to make sure we get this home semi-final. It's so important that we do. But you can balance that against uh, resting some of your players who might not go particularly well on that sort of pitch because of where we are. Sale versus Gloucester in round nineteen. Oh, sorry, round twenty of the competition this year. That's my approach on it. I don't know if there's any any dissent, dissenting view from your side or.
1: No, I think you've got to, you've got to play safe with the players. Uh, I think the only one that will be considered out of the kind of the. So I don't think Ben Curry will play. I don't think Dan DuPrier will play. You know, I think we'll 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 probably go with Curry and Doug Dale in the back in the back row, uh, with Ross going again at eight. Um, with Jean Luc going again in the second row, because he's gonna he's gonna finish the season in the second row, Jean Luc. Um, so you know, he needs to play, I think, in that position. He's not played there much, certainly in twenty twenty-three. So he needs to get that game time under his belt. And being without Visa, we just are a bit short in the second row, honestly. And, and you know, Josh Beaumont, fucking hell, I mean, do you really, you know, he's had some serious leg injuries and, uh, you know, we really need his now coming off the bench if you're going to win the premiership, honestly, you know, going straight to Groves, you know, or Bamber or someone like this. Uh, postlethwaite we've not seen, so I, I don't know what's happening there. Um, but, you know, we... I think that's too much of a risk as well. So I think that I think they'll go with the same second row, starting um, with probably Groves coming off the bench and resting Beaumont. Um, and then the front row, I think the front rows will all stay the same. I mean, Aker has been struggling, but more with neck injuries. So I think that you know they'll go again with, with with the same front row, six front rows going down there. And I think that that that's absolutely fine and, and keeps it all nice and mobile. Um, yeah, you know, I think the only question may is whether you know Gus Wars always got everything bandaged, <laughs> you know, with, with whether he, you know he maybe moves to the bench. Um, and uh, you have Rafi start just for, for for this game. I think the only one they'll consider is George Ford because getting him a run of games seems really important, and to have another week off and then and, and then another wait for two weeks to the final, getting all this kind of stuff, and then asking Rob. To move back to ten, to move back to thirteen, disrupts that as well. I think they'll go with 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 either Ford and Rob again, or or Ford and James for this game. They'll, they, I think they'll keep George. It's a bit of a risk, especially because he's had a you know difficult injury there. But I think he'll want to play, and I think if we're going to win the Premiership, he probably has to play. But don't get me wrong; it's a there's a risk there. Too long, he won't play. So I imagine that Mills will come in at twelve. Um, he seems to be the sort of the 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 player who's gonna see through the season as the backup. We know that Doty's back from injury, but he's you know, very, very serious injury. You do not <laughs> to to his leg. You do not send him on a four G pitch from out cold, um, you know, to suddenly play a premiership game out of nowhere at the end of the season. You know, if anything, he should be going off like um Yules is doing. To South Africa to finish the season. You know, that's what we should be thinking about. Doherty, you know, can we get him some club rugby in Australia or New Zealand um, over the uh, you know, over the off season, really, so that he can come back at some with some sort of fitness and momentum. So so I, to two angles and play playing, Mills plays, I think there. Uh I think Roebuck will carry on. So you the only there might be some rotation on the wing just to give Reed some game time is the only thing I'm 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 thinking there. Um, yeah so um, so yeah I think there will be some of those players but I think they'll go with George
0: yeah I mean I think like you said from a tactical point of view it's it's hard to once you take away the potential injury risk there's it's hard to see there being too many changes for the team that that's just beating Bristol like you said I could definitely see a, a world where Aaron Reid starts over Tom Rowe but that seems to have been the pattern so far this season you know I know Flackerty's kept his spot on the, the left wing but um, but other than that, like, I can't see Jason Woodward getting a start over Joe Carpenter. You know, we've not seen much of Luke James. You know, he he might be an option at 12, but uh, to your point, we've seen Ryan Mills in that position a, a lot more frequently. Um, you know, w- whether or not you use this as an opportunity to give Will Cliff a, 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 an opportunity off the bench, if Gus Ward does need the break, or if Rafi, you know, Rafi's had a lot of injuries, whether he can play on the... Um, whether or not he can play on that sort of um, pitch, uh, you know, remains to be seen. Um, and yeah, I think that that basically makes all of your uh, all of your selection calls for you. So, with that being said, um, what's your what's your verdicts on this one? Away at Gloucester, tough place to to travel down to, but sailing good form, Gloucester in poor form. How do you see it working out?
1: Twenty-two all draw.
0: Wow, would that be enough to to get us uh, a home semi final? Yeah,
1: well, no, I think we need three points, don't we, to guarantee? So, um, if you know what if it's like a thirty three all draw, uh, then if we got a try bonus in that as well, then that would be enough, right? So, let's. I'm going to change my mind. Weather's going to be good, very good, I think, next weekend. I'm going to do thirty three all and say I'll get three points and get a home semi final.
0: All right, that's a. Uh... That, that, that's a pretty good assumption uh, Then I, I think so. I think so. i this. I think it's a bit like the Bristol game where we just overpower them, we just bludgeon them. I think the depth we have in our squad now with that little sprinkling of stardust, I, I, I think it'll be enough to get past this Gloucester team who I think will cause us real problems. But I just think we'll have we'll be able to, you know, just pick and drive or maul over the line a couple of times and that'll get us through. So I'm going to go Gloucester 27, sale. 34, um, so it should be uh, an exciting game, regardless. um So obviously that's the that's the on-field stuff discussed. But obviously, having had a couple of weeks uh, off, there's a bit of off-field news that we wanted to to round off the pod this week uh to uh, to to round off the discussion on this week's pod. So we have uh, both Aliva. Uh well two levers and a and a joiner to discuss. I don't think we ever actually got round to talking about the confirmation that Sam Bedlow will be rejoining the club from Bristol for next season. Um James, you know, I admit it was a couple of weeks ago now. What was your what was your thoughts or what was your reaction to the news that Bedlow would be rejoining the club next year?
1: Well it's always good to have you know a lad from the Northwest come in because you know it's a real part of our identity. He's also a good kicker at goal and long distance kicking as well. Um, his kicking out of hand is excellent, um, and you know he's a really nice little ball player. Really, you know he, he's a really good kind of sort of backup to Sam James. Really, just with the mm. right peg rather than the left peg. You know he's, he's he's he can play ten at a push, so he's got that sort of skill set. He can play. He's he's now big enough to play twelve uh and defend from a square position which we you know sam is is slightly less good at you know so he can get us over the game line and he's also can play 13 so I think that it really just gives us a lot of options there especially off the bench as well and just that sort of depth of squad player really really important you know my first observation was well you know that, that leaves us heavily stocked if Manu stays at in at 12 especially um because you know, I, I personally think, you know, I, I've said to you, this to, to you both before, but I don't, really don't understand why Luke James just isn't picked at 12 nearly every single game. Seven to eight out of 10 every single game never lets us down. That's his main position, what's going on kind of thing, especially now Carpenter's on the scene. But so, so he's in the squad. Is he just going to be covering 15? We imagine, you know, maybe Sam Hill and, 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 and Mills might be, might be leaving the club. So, that does take two 12s out. But, you know, Doherty is back. Uh, Mycy White as well, the young lad that we signed from Wasps. He can play 12 or 13, but, you know, he's a solid player in that position. We've got Joe Bedlow as well.
0: I wanted to ask you about Marcy White, actually, because I don't think we've had the opportunity to really discuss him either. Uh, as someone who knows a bit about age-grade rugby, do you see him more as a 12 or a 13 at the top level?
1: I, I think he'll end up as a 12. I think, uh, you know, the the sort of the age grade rugby, 13 suits him because he's quick, um, you know, and and when you can get on the outside at age grade rugby, you know, the the fitness levels aren't there, um, you know, in the same kind of way. Uh, But also, England tend to play generally at under 20 level. They pick 10s at 10 and 12. That's been the the history of of England in the 20s for for a decade or more. Uh, And at 15, by the way, they tend to pick. Uh, because the reason being is because everyone tends to be 10s if you're a really, really good ball player who's going to yeah. make it at school rugby, right, at club rugby as well. And it's not until you get into the professional adult environment where you're multi-age group, uh, you know, where you, you actually go, I'm a more of a actually, at this level, I'll be more of a 12 or even a 13 like Sam James. You know, uh, you know, you look at someone like Atkinson and started at 10, end up at 12. So I, I think Massey White will end up as a 12. Um, you know, he, he's going to be a really big lad as well. I, I, I hope, you know, I think he's got some work to do, a bit like Manu with his um, offloading, especially he needs to be improved. Also, it's just his passing game, maybe adding a kicking game. Um, but I, I would like to see him coming through next year, um, starting to make an impact, uh, maybe in the cup competitions. So, you know, obviously that's going to be difficult if he's got 3,000 people ahead of him in the mm. pecking
0: order. Well, that looks back to, I guess, what we were already talking about before I, I, I took us on that tangent, which is, okay, so let's say Mills and um, Hill leave next year. You've still got Conor Doherty, uh, Luke James, Manitou Marcy White, Sam James, Rob DePria, That's Sam six. Bedloe. Sam Bedlow. That's seven inside or outside centres. And then you're adding... Well, sorry, Joe Bedlow, and then you're adding Sam Bedloe to that as well. So even if you ignore Joe Bedlow for the time being, you're still looking at six players potentially who could play those two positions ahead of Bedloe joining the squad. Where, where, where do you think that leaves sale? Like, Do you think this is the precursor to more players in that role leaving? Or how, I, does, I, how does it all shake I, out?
1: I honestly don't know, but I, I would say if you've got somebody who's played nearly 150 times for sale, like Luke James, and he's played once since the new year, unless it's, unless it's injury-related, in which case we'll t- I'll take it back. But, you know, the very best teams would be finding, you know, players like him would play nearly every game. And some of the other sort of star players would be sort of rotating around him almost. Um, you know, we haven't managed to make that work. So, I don't know what's happening with Luke James. Outside of that, I think there are question marks, you know, like, you know, Marcy White... Joe Bedlow, they haven't played at the, the senior level yet. So you do need that depth of experience. So I can understand that. And, you know, manage somebody who can win you a premiership final, you know, and, and, and Sam Bedlow maybe doesn't fall into that camp. Connor Doherty, you know, this was going to be a breakthrough season for him, like Gus War. I've got no doubt that it would have been if he had been fit. Um, you know, he looked next level against Connor. He'd also, you know, he'd shown enough in his, his outings at 12 to show that he could make it at this level. But very serious injury. I mean, really serious. You you just cannot be sure that he'll come back with the same level of dynamism and speed and power. You just don't know. Obviously, we hope that he will. So I can see why, actually, there's enough uncertainty, even with the signing of Sam Bedlow, where the re-signing of, of Manu makes kind of sense. Just leaves quite well stocked there from a salary cap perspective with Ewan Ashman off, which will be the next thing. It's, you know what? What do we do at Hooker?
0: Well, let's let's, let's get on to that then. So, whilst Bedlow is joining, we are uh, we have two leavers to announce. One is you and Ashman moving uh, finally back up to to Scotland. Uh, we'll we'll touch upon that momentarily, uh, and the news that Will Cliff will be it, uh, pulling the curtain down on his uh, rugby career at the end of this current season. So, James, where do you want to go first? Do You want to go Ashman, or do you want to go Cliffy?
1: Let's finish on Cliffy and let's do Ashman first. I mean, what's your view, Lewis, of of, of, of Ashman leaving? Because this has been feels like it's been a recurring story with the mm. Sru coming in for him for 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 at least two years. Well,
0: you you, you obviously know my feelings on this because you've you've set me up for it perfectly. Um, but fundamentally, I think this actually speaks to a, quite a poor bit of squad management on Sales' behalf and. You know, I'm not one to just kind of throw criticisms around willy-nilly. Um, but a couple of seasons ago, we had four hookers on our roster. We had Ewan Ashman, Tommy Taylor, Merva, Merver uh, and Curtis Langdon. Now, a couple of years ago, the exact same situation as what's happened now happened, right? The SRU approached Ewan Ashman, a player who is capped by Scotland, uh, who is uh, Scottish qualified, uh, but not playing as part of the SRU's network uh, up, in, up in Scotland. Ewan, or Sale, or whatever it was, basically rebuffed the attempts to bring him north of the border. And as a result, we had him on the books and Langdon. Langdon was allowed to leave. He he obviously went down to join Steve Diamond at Worcester at the time and is subsequently now playing for Montpellier. Um, And, you know, we we went down from four hookers to three. Now, two years down the line, Ewan Ashman is gone. he's going back to Scotland. Um, And I'm a bit confused as to why Sale have allowed this to happen. Because you knew knew for a fact that Scotland were either going to keep coming back for him time and time again and try and turn the player's head, or they would stop picking him, which would also turn the player's head. And the frustrating thing from from my perspective is, two years ago, I said, either on this pod or in private, I can't remember, if, it come, if push comes to shove, we should keep Langdon. He's English qualified. He's a better player than Ashman at the time. And whilst Ashman might have a higher ceiling, we don't have to worry about stopping him getting poached by the SRU every couple of years. Instead, we've obviously chosen to go with Ashman. We've allowed Langdon to leave. And we're now in a position where we had both of them on the books, and starting next season, we'll have neither of them. And I think I feel a little bit frustrated that we've, we've opted down this route and lost a player in Curtis Langdon, who I think is developing into a very, very top-end premiership player. He's now going to go do that for Northampton next year rather than sale. Whilst you and Ashman's going to go play for Glasgow or whoever it is up in the URC, so I'm a bit, I'm a bit sour about it because um, I, whilst I don't, you know, begrudge Ashman for doing it at all, um, this just feels like we we could have avoided this at the time, um, and it is a bit frustrating that we we've ended up in this position.
1: Yeah, I I completely agree, and of course, you know, when someone signs a contract, there's a feeling maybe of commitment there. Um, twelve months on the, and, and late in the season as well, which means we've missed out on potentially bringing Langdon back, which make which feels quite painful. As you said, he's probably somebody who's gonna be just below international level, English qualified, was coaching Lynn, you know, like really sort of settled in the area, you know, I think that feels like a blow. That said, you know, Acker and Tommy Taylor are as two first choice hookers. Most clubs it still be will still be in the top two or three clubs in terms of the quality of those two players. The issue is the fitness. Uh, you know, no, you know, Tommy, you know, we weren't sure how much rugby we we're going to get out of him. He's looks in the best shape of his life and is very unfortunate not to be getting picked ahead of Ashman, um, in my view, at the moment. Uh, Acker looks like he might want to stay. Well, fingers bloody crossed because, as you said, you know, like this is falling apart quite quickly. We've got Ethan Kane coming through, we've got Thompson, Carrie Thompson coming through as well. We do have some youngsters, but... You know, I, you feel that maybe there is a go-to-market thing here that is required, um, you know, just someone experienced maybe. Um, but, you know, both Acker and Tommy, you know, they're around the 30-plus mark, you know, so we are now lacking that player in the kind of 24 to 28 area, which you really want, really, to build a squad round.
0: Well, that was, that was my frustration, which is Acker and Tommy Taylor in their age 31 seasons, like... As good as former Acker has been in, as good as former Tommy Taylor's been in, you know, they probably what got two or three years left. You know, and it might be that we we get the equivalent of Tom Curry at Hooker, you know, come to the academy in the next couple of years and, and he's the hooker for the next 10, 15 years, whatever. But as long as 25, right? Uh y- you know, even if you'd um even if you know Acker and and, and Tommy continue on or maybe if one of them moves in two years time both of them are very unlikely to still be part of the sales squad and if they are they won't be playing meaningful minutes you and Ashman at 23 or Curtis Langdon at 25 would be and I think that's the frustrating thing which is it just kind of feels like we've we you know we had a, a surplus of hookers we've maybe not managed it ideally and look you know maybe it was Curtis wasn't going to resign at sale anyway he wanted to play 30 games a season, we couldn't promise that and, and Worcester could and that's why he left. And I get that sometimes these things are out of our control. But like I said, it, with the benefit of hindsight, it's just a bit frustrating that we're, we've now left with two hookers, both of whom are the wrong side of 30 and we are now potentially having to go back to market with the salary cap is lower to try and find someone else who can come yeah. And them.
1: at the end of the season, yeah, where everyone's signed everywhere else, so... I think that's going to be a, t- a, t- a tough one, um, and we'll probably have a holding position, won't we? I'd imagine for a year or two before we can get fully back on track on that. But you say that you know the succession planning there is is a lot more difficult now. Um, but onto nicer topics, um, you know, Will Cliff, two hundred and odd gains for sale over two stints. Uh, he obviously went off to Bristol for a couple of years with Mark Jones, and then came back. You know, he's hanging up his boots at the end of the season. We've only seen him a couple of times this year due to injury, which has been a massive shame. But, what, Lewis, what, what do you have to say about, about Cliffy? What a servant, right?
0: I, I've just pulled up his numbers uh, from All Rugby, which I've mentioned a few times on this pod, but is a really good resource for actually getting up-to-date career figures on, on players. Um, 176 appearances for sale over the best part of, of 10 seasons. Uh, obviously, like you said, had a couple of uh, had a couple of years down at, at Bristol, which you know we'll conveniently forget. Um, otherwise, he would have been a one club man. Um, but yeah, look, you know, a fantastic servant for the club. Um, someone who, you, you know, be, being honest, has, has never been a world beater. You know, he's never he's never really pushed for for England uh, recognition. Um, you know, he's never necessarily kind of been at the the highest tier of, of Premiership player. But has been a very, very effective member of the team for a very long period of time. You know, you forget that he's thirty-four, um, and he's been playing. He's been playing professional rugby since well, senior level professional rugby since twenty twenty-three, sorry twenty thirteen. So you know, over the course of ten years and you know two hundred plus games at the highest level, you know, he's certainly made a mark. And we speak a lot on this pod about depth and about the players you know, behind your FAFTA clerks and or or adjacent to your Dwayne Peels or whatever. And, you know, Will Cliff, it's important to, to recognise players like Will Cliff because even if, you know, the, their amount of appearances are, are going to diminish, you know, year over year, having dependable members of the squad, proper game managers, people who can, you know, lend a voice to the to the younger players in the team, I'm sure Gus War and Rafi Quirk will have experienced plenty of mentorship from Will Cliff. And also having him as a foil to a player like a Faf who is, you who know, is a superstar at the position, but maybe not always what you need, I think is is so important to building a, a, a cohesive team that can win things consistently. And I remember in those first couple of years of de Klerk uh, joining the squad, how valuable it was to have a an English scrum half with premiership experience who knew how to game manage and could box kick um you know consistently you know and at times kick sticks as well uh, you know he had a couple of appearances in i think it was seventeen eighteen where he was doing the goal kicking you know these are the sort of things that unless you 're a sicko like us and just watch sell every week for you know ten plus years, you just miss but it's those moments when you come to the end of a player's career that you remember and think, actually, that's that's what it means to be a club servant. That's what it means to be dependable. And it's 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 a it's a it's an easy link as to why Cliff is so well regarded by the cell fan base as a very popular player, uh, as someone who's got good links with the club, uh, you know, and Sandbach and a few others off the field. But for people who just watch on the field, you're like, yeah, shit, I remember when Will Cliff was having to kick at sticks. Uh, in 2017 because no one else would do it and he put his hand up. And like I said, it's a shame that, you know, he maybe never, I don't think he ever really got close to England recognition, but one of the beauty, one of the beautiful things about Premiership rugby is you have your world-class players, you have your exciting academy players, and you have this this sort of middle-class of player who just turn up week in, week out, do the basics right uh, and build a platform to make your team succeed. And Will Cliff, I think, in my opinion, was was one of those players you know, and and the fact he's got two hundred appearances for Sale and Bristol is is a testament to just how dependable he was ultimately.
1: Yeah, I, I think he made. I think he made his debut in two thousand and seven, so he's been around a really, really long time. And I also remember him coming back from injury. We had a injury crisis at nine, and he came back with like he'd broken his face or something, like his eye socket, I think it was. And he came back and played before it was fully healed because we'd had a crisis at nine, and he was only really young here. So I mean. I'm not sure that'll be allowed these days, but it shows how committed he's been to Sale right from the start. Proper sand lad. You know, he's got his beer um, stuff going on at the moment, which is sold at the ground. And I think that that, that's the kind of link that needs to continue. Um, I think he's got, you know, he's got a really good character. He's clearly been really valued in the dressing room. Um, you know, I can see him doing a few more media things at the moment, like going around like King Schools, Mac and things like this, where I could really see him doing sort of school outreach and, and things and staying an ambassador for the club because he's what, you know, the vast majority of people, you know, will want to aspire to be, you know, 200 games at premiership level. That's not an easy thing, um, you know, and uh, to do it you're know, so consistently, I think it's been fantastic. And you're right, this is a really good example of where succession planning has been good. And he's been happy letting Rafi go ahead of him. Now he'd let Gus Waugh go ahead of him. And this year, you can see him out on the pitch helping someone like Nye Thomas practice box kicks ahead of a Premiership Cup game. And, and it's just like, that is what good clubs are built on. You know, there's no ego there. He's in service to the club. He's, in, he's helping his, his other nines. And there's no doubt about it that Gus War's kicking game is so much better for having worked because he's not learnt it from from Fuzzy. <laughs> you know he's learning from Will Cliff. Like seriously, that's where he's learnt it from. He, Will Cliff's one of the one of the better box kickers in the in the game, in the English game. So you know, very lucky to have had someone like that. Um, and you know, I think it's it's testament to the fact that we've got the scrum halves that we've got now, first and second choice. A lot of that is down to Will Cliff. So, you know, we, we wish him all the best post-rugby. Hope he stays in and around the club. And I hope that, you know, he he finds enjoyment on the on the beer side um, as well. So, thank you, Will, uh, for all of those years' service. And we'll follow your post-rugby career with great interest.
0: Fun fact about Will Cliff, I've just learned, by the way. Um, so, first of all, sorry, you were right. 2007, he did make his debut, um, all, all rugby, and he went back to 2013. Um I didn't realise in 2010 he was due to have a loan move to Glasgow Warriors, which fell through because he couldn't get registered. So there you go. There's there's, there's something that I've just learned about Will Cliff.
1: Yeah, he could have had 50 cats for Scotland by now. He's <laughs> yeah, a project almost, player. There we are, Will. Something to ponder.
0: <laughs> almost certainly. Um, that's the pod for this week. Thank you so much to everyone for listening. Thank you to everyone for also bearing with us whilst there's not been any rugby on. Uh, we hope you enjoyed the pod. plenty to discuss. And, and obviously we'll be back next week after that Gloucester game but massive thank you to James for joining me and having so many opinions on Will Cliff you and Ashman plus others Uh, and thank you to our listeners for first of all tuning in uh, and also for sending in your three word review so that's the pod for this week thank you very much for listening and we'll chat to you guys hopefully with the home semi-final secured next week